Please open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 128. If you're new to the church or you haven't been here during this series, we're in the book of Psalms, a series through the Psalms of Ascent. If you'll open your Bible right in the middle, crack it in half, you're probably going to land in the book of Psalms. Get yourself to 128, and that's where we'll be for the whole morning. In 1979, Dan rather opened up a 60 Minutes show with a segment on a new idea. Wellness, he said. Now there's a word you don't hear every day. And 40 years later, wellness is a word that we pretty much hear every day. I suppose at the time it might have sounded to our ears as wellest or weller might sound to our ears like a strangely formed word that should not be a word. Well, this anecdote comes from a New York Times piece from a few years ago that was detailing how wellness as an idea took over the more narrow idea of health. Goes back to the 1950s and some lectures by a man named Halbert Dunn who talked about high-level wellness, an integrated method of functioning which is oriented toward maximizing the potential of which the individual is capable. And today, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, or financial wellness, there is a book or a program for it. And so much of it, no doubt, is helpful. So much of the literature is helpful. But the most important literature on wellness does not come from a recent study, <coughs> excuse me, but from an ancient book, an ancient book, the Bible, the best book on life because it's written by the one who makes life and who gives life its meaning. Of course, we know that the Bible's highest gift to us is a message of eternal redemption, but that eternal salvation that God grants to us through Jesus Christ begins at the new birth. And the Holy Spirit was so gracious to inspire the word for us, not merely that we might be saved and meet the Lord face to face at our death so that we might live for him and live in a way that blesses us in the meantime. He wants to see us well and doing well at living in the world. Well, Psalm 128 gives us a poem which captures the heart, we could say, of God's wellness program. It's like the description on the back of the book. So let's read it together, Psalm 128. A song of a sense. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And so here is a simple poem with a promise of simple blessing. Blessing that very best kind of wellness, a sign of the favor of God on a life. There are three stanzas in this poem for three parts to our sermon for a day in the life of a blessed man. We'll look at the blessed man and see him on his field. We'll follow him into his house and then out to his city to trace how the blessing moves. Verse 1 and 2, the blessed man, the blessed man. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, 
and it shall be well with you. In this first verse, we see where the blessed life begins and we see who it's for. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We're going to watch a man who is the head of his household in this psalm. And so a lot of this sermon will be directed at men who are heads of households, as that's the text in front of us. But the takeaway of blessing on offer is for everyone who fears the Lord, however that may look. And so the blessed life begins with the rightly ordered spiritual life. It doesn't say blessed is everyone who devotes themselves to spiritual new age meditation. It doesn't say blessed is everyone who performs a religious ritual. It doesn't even say blessed is everyone who goes into vocational ministry. It doesn't even say blessed is everyone who goes to a faithful gospel preaching church. It says blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now this word fear will forever need a bit of qualification. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard many explanations of what fear does and doesn't mean. We don't generally talk this way in positive terms about any other relationship, but it's positive here. Our relationship with God isn't exactly like other relationships, and yet there is a comparison that we can make. When things are right, we can say that children who love and are loved by their parents properly also fear their parents. Parents bring us into the world and they are behind every support for our lives in the younger years. And this elicits a certain base level of respect, of humility, a perception of one's dependence and relative size when things are right. How much more with the Lord? And by fear here is not meant horror to make you hide, but holy awe to make you humble. Blessed is everyone who takes God seriously, who reverences the Lord deeply. The Son is to be feared and also trusted. It is our source of life and also a huge fireball. Now all of this assumes something really basic. Something that we should not assume in hearing this psalm. It assumes a relationship with the Lord. And so I have to ask you, do you have a relationship with the Lord? Maybe you've been asked that before. It's a somewhat well-worn phrase, but it's a good way to put the question. And I suppose we all have a relationship with the Lord. If you're set against him in your heart, you have a bad relationship with the Lord. And even if you perceive that the relationship is non-existent, the Bible says that you are far from God and even that you are without hope in the world. We all have some kind of relationship with the Lord. To fear him, you must do more than acknowledge him as God, but know him as Lord. The word for Lord, when you see it in capital letters here, is that personal name of God, Yahweh, that God gave to Moses that the people would address God with, the personal name associated with his salvation of his people from Egypt. If you do not fear the Lord in a relationship of salvation and redemption, you will fear him in due time in a relationship of judgment. And so I plead with you, while there is time to seek the Lord, 
and fear him as your Lord and your Redeemer. So do you fear him? Do you know God and take him seriously? You fear him when he is the ground that your life is built upon. Like a ship that keeps us alive at every moment, there is a proper reverence and even fear of the great thing. He is not the big man upstairs or an invisible buddy. He is God, the maker of heaven and earth. You fear him when he's your guide in life whom you follow. His ways are the safe ways. When he speaks, we listen. When he commands, we obey. Not because we are afraid of him, but because we are afraid of life apart from him and his ways keep us close and safe. And you fear him when he is the goal to which your life is aimed. The ground, your guide, and the goal, all of your life revolving around the Lord. How might you be able to tell if you fear him? Is there a test that we can undergo to know if we properly fear the Lord? And we find out in our next line. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now walking in his ways is not the same thing as fearing the Lord. But walking in his ways is what happens when we fear the Lord, which sounds a bit like what Jesus said in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So are you like the kid who says, I totally respect my father. Yeah, he doesn't know where I am right now, but I don't really agree with this curfew, and so I just figure, you know, he can deal with it. Respect for dad comes with a reflex to do what dad says. One is the measure of the other. And so our internal orientation toward the Lord will yield an outward orientation in his ways. Holy awe of God leads to a holy way of life. Such is the starting place of true high-level wellness. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That's verse 1. But what does this look like in practical terms? In practical terms. That's what the rest of the poem shows us, starting with the next verse. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. And here we see the man on his farm. The, he fears the Lord and the Lord fears him, feeds him. There's work in his hands and there's a meal in his mouth. And what's the relationship between the work in his hands, the labor of his hands, and the meal that he eats? It's a question worth thinking carefully about. There are two ways that we could say blessing comes to us from the Lord. The first we might call the covenantal way. That is under the old covenant, God promised reward for obedience. Reward that he would grant for obedience that was conducted on the part of his people. It's a bit of a low illustration. I will likely regret using this illustration. I will probably be confronted for using this illustration. 
But imagine a master giving a dog a bone. The dog is pleased to please the master. There is a relationship there. And the master is pleased to reward him and the dog needs to eat. But there isn't necessarily an immediate relationship between the obedience or what was asked and what is blessed. Here's from the old covenant that Israel lived under. From Deuteronomy 28. Much of the Old Testament you have to view through this lens. If you walk faithfully, and if you walk faithfully, obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall be you when you go out. Conversely, if you don't obey the voice of the Lord, a nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. In this case, in this covenant, the Lord's blessing came in a specially providential way. You could say supernaturally. Magically might be a word for it. Poof, you think of Uh, Israel before the walls of Jericho, obeying and trusting the Lord and the walls come down. I understand there are folks trying to explain how it is they might have gone about bringing the walls down. I need no natural explanation for that whatsoever. The Lord took them down and so much of God's blessing would come to Israel in this fashion. But there's a second way that blessing comes to us. If the first was, call it covenantal, the second is consequential. Not supernaturally, though God's in it all, but naturally, as a natural consequence of the way the world works. Not magically, but for a lack of another better M word, mechanically, or as a means. A natural consequence of, sorry, because God's ways fit the world. There's a certain way of living that fits the world, and when you live in a way that fits the world, there are certain natural, wonderful consequences that follow. And not proof God makes it happen, but proof in your life that his ways are good. And this psalm is considered a wisdom psalm teaching us about how to live. So it comes to us in the context of that old covenant through Moses that we'd read from. But there's also a connection between walking in God's ways and the blessing that is promised as a consequence. Here's a beautiful quote by philosopher Jack Handy. Everything happens for a reason, he says, but sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. (laughs) Do you remember Jack Handy? (laughs) And that's not too far from how the Bible actually puts it in the book of Proverbs if you read through Proverbs. There's a reason why many bad things come to us and many good things come to us. And it's because of foolishness or wisdom. Some of us may want the Lord's blessing without the Lord's ways, and yet they go together. Covenantal blessing and consequential blessing. Both are going on here. The Lord is holding out reward for walking in his ways because that's what he wants for his people, and it's good, and he is pleased to reward them. 
but he is also revealing why his ways are good, why his ways are worth it in this psalm. His are the ways that work best in the world that he personally built. Now back to the farm. Let's consider God's ways for our work. Work doesn't always feel that spiritual, but by judging by how much the Bible says and how serious the Bible takes our work, it is absolutely spiritual. Here are several proverbs on work, some of God's ways on work. Listen for contrasts, Proverbs 28, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Plenty of bread, a blessing for work. Plenty of poverty, a consequence of not working. Here's one. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The sluggard, you've got to love that word. He wants and craves, but he's got nothing because he's a sluggard. The diligent soul works and gets a whole lot. Here's another one, Proverbs 20, 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. You want to eat? Open your eyes. Like step number one, get out of bed. That's what it's saying. You've got the idea. When you fear the Lord, you walk in his ways and one of his ways is good old-fashioned, obvious hard work. A means through which the Lord provides the blessing of food. And there's honest work. Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And as the New Testament puts it, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So let me ask you, are you, friend, a hard worker? Are you an honest worker? Christians should be famous for both. Do you give at work as much as you take home at the end of the month? It's hard to quantify, of course, but are you working to be worth your job? That takes spiritual energy and it's part of your worship to God. The Christian or worship part of your week is not just when you're at church. The worship part of your week is all week, including your job, however mundane or unspiritual it may seem. Do not be ashamed if you don't make a ton of money. If you do work that is classified with less clout in our culture, all work is significant. Work does not have to provide you with everything you might want or everything others tell you that you might need in order to be worthy work. We're all different, different backgrounds and desires and abilities. And the dignity of our work is not how much we make, but in the quality and the honesty of our work. If this is ever lost around us, let it never be lost among us as Christians. So don't be ashamed if you don't make a ton of money in your work. The Lord can be honored in it, and there's no greater honor than that. Also, don't be ashamed if you make a ton of money. If you've been successful in your job, if you've been entrusted with great responsibility and therefore great pay, do not hasten to be rich, that's dangerous, 
Do not make more of riches than they actually are. There are plenty of proverbs against riches and their danger. We should warn the wealthy about wealth. We should all be warned. But we should also recognize that wealth comes from somewhere. And often enough, there's hard work and wise decisions and sound living to commend. The 1% these days get a, a decently hard time. Funny thing is, is that it's not a static group of people. Most of it is made up of people who are only there for one year out of 10, which means hard work resulted in the end of a career at a high point in which they make so much. And then after a spike, maybe down. It's not a fixed enduring group. My point is not that wealth doesn't have its dangers. There are passages for that. It's that wealth also has its explanations. And in as much as wealth and the reward of work is explained by skillful living and honest labor and hard work, it's to be commended and celebrated and leveraged for good, not shamed or lamented or, or hidden in embarrassment of some kind. So we've looked at the best man, the blessed man. He fears the Lord and walks in his ways, and so he's a good worker. And as he's a good worker, he is blessed with the reward for his work. Now that the day is over, let's follow him into his home, and let's expand our view a bit to view his family. We've seen the blessed man, now we see the blessed home, verses 3 through 4. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And already we notice something. This is a hard worker, but he is not a workaholic. This is a family man. He works for food to put food on his table because there are people around his table. We're here to do, we're to do honest work so that we may have something to share in need with those in need, which means the fruit of our labor isn't just for our mouths, and especially if we're married and with children, then our work is intended in the first place for their mouths as well as ours. And this means work is not ultimate. It is meant to feed a family, not swallow a family. Be very careful that work your job does not swallow up those things that that job is intended to serve. If your job requires so much of you that you can give nothing to your family and it's not a seasonal thing and there is no end, then maybe you need to get a very different job. And that may mean a very different standard of living and that's okay. This man's work is unto the good of his family and he's there with them. First thing we notice is his wife. She's a fruitful vine. That speaks largely to her gift of children to the home and to her husband. She's a mother. Now let me hit pause right here. We're inside the home, but we're going to walk outside real quick and talk about something. My wife was playing a puzzle last week, which I will always try to talk her out of doing. 2,000 problems in a pile on my kitchen table isn't good for anybody in my house. But somehow it refreshes her. One puzzle she was doing was mildly interesting to me. 
Uh, it became interesting to both of us. It was uh, like a giant picture full of old candy wrappers. And I didn't like the puzzle until I started noticing the slogans. The slogans these companies used to get away with. I bet some of them would be illegal. At least we wouldn't believe them and they wouldn't work. Hershey's Bar from 1912. You ready? Hershey's Milk Chocolate. So far, so good. A nourishing food. Hmm. More sustaining than meat. I'm not making that up. It said more sustaining than meat. And I went on Wikipedia and there it is. Sounds like a bit of false advertising. And we are used to a whole lot of false or exaggerated or hyperbolic advertising. Is that what this psalm is? It appears to ask of us something and promise us something that at least we should wonder if we should really, could really expect. I don't want to suck the life out of this poem with qualifications, but if this poem will be life to many of us, we'll need a few qualifications. Remember what a psalm is. It's a poem in wisdom literature. A psalm does not teach, this psalm does not teach that a spouse and children come to all the godly. One commentator wrote this, the God-fearing man will have a child-bearing wife. I thought, dude, put down the nachos and turn off the TV and finish your commentary and turn on your mind. There was no qualification anywhere in this paragraph, he just moved on. Well, psalms are poems, and this is wisdom literature. We can think in terms of principles, and patterns, but not fixed promises. The psalm does, however, assume that marriage and children are a blessing and therefore should be welcomed. And of course, we'll keep in our mind a theology of singleness and uh, where infertility fits in a fallen world where the Lord does not grant children. For those who are not blessed with a spouse but desire one or who are married without children or who have a spouse or children who aren't really the blessing we're seeing here, the Bible is filled with words for you of hope and encouragement and comfort. And if you're disappointed, as long as it's not despair, it's probably a good thing as it's a sign that you're a human being and you're alive. The purpose of this psalm is simple to hold out as a matter of principle that the Lord blesses the life that is centered on him. The Lord fulfills the person and makes the person happy, blessed, whose life is ordered properly around him. And this is one way that it looks for a head of a household. It may look different for you, but that blessing is nevertheless available to you. And it may not even include things that you might deeply desire that are good. And yet we have the promise that the Lord is good and he does good. And all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You are blessed if you're his. When you take a new job and start your training, the training manager might say this. This could be helpful to put this in perspective. Training manager might say, now listen, get your sleep, show up on time, uh, roll with it. Um, please, the, please your manager. She's good, she's a little difficult sometimes. And if you do that, it'll go well with you around here. 
Now, is that a hard rule? Should that new hire be disappointed when it doesn't go really well and he or she's done the four things? No, no, no. It's understood that in this environment, there's a certain way that things work. And if you play by these rules, there's a certain outcome that you could reasonably expect. But of course, there are exceptions. So as we look at this picture together, here's what we can all do. We, consider, we can consider the simplicity and the accessibility of these blessings. These are not for a special class of spiritual people or a special class of people. Consider their trickle-down effect and how these blessings to one man affect and stretch out from his life to others. And consider their boomerang effect and how the man benefits from the blessing that he is to his wife and kids that are in turn a blessing to him. It's like a totally biblical pyramid scheme. Hopefully, all of this will help us to hear this beautiful poem the right way. Back to this man's wife. The text says she's like a fruitful vine. It's a happy marriage and she's happy in the marriage and she's happy with the one whom she married. She's inside the home as opposed to another woman in the wisdom literature who's in the street, who's loud, who's making a racket and who's promiscuous. He fears the Lord and the Lord blesses him, but lo and behold, this is also a blessing to his wife. She is loved and together their love multiplies itself. Their home is open to children. A well-ordered home and a well-oiled marriage has room for children. They bring a tremendous amount of chaos into our lives, but this couple faces it together with eager hearts. She bears children and they're both blessed for them. Childbearing is probably primarily in view here. We're only a word or two away from children around the table. But there are other ways apart from childbearing that a wife may be a blessing to her husband. She can bless her husband in a variety of ways. For example, she can bring him joy like wine. She can intoxicate him with her body. I'm leaning right into the vine imagery here, which may be a nod to the bedroom. Just listen to Solomon. If you're old enough to understand what I'm about to read from the scriptures, you're probably old enough to be instructed by it. If it's confusing, one day. I will climb the palm tree, Solomon says. I will lay hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. In other words, the man who fears God will cultivate in his wife a security and satisfaction in the relationship that manifests itself in the bedroom, the most intimate of places in the relationship. A godly life will yield a frisky wife. <laughs> we preachers are proud of some lines that we come up with. <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with the comparative perfection of this woman's body. Standards which change depending on where you live and when you live there. It has to do with their relationship, which is no doubt because of his godliness 
characterized by gentleness and tenderness and long listening and honor and respect. None of this, we should assume, is automatic. This kind of marriage is hard won and it is also hard kept. You don't see it in the psalm. You only see the outcome here, but the work is there for God's ways are not always so easy. He knows there's a way that seems right to him, but in the end, it leads to death, and so he follows his God's ways concerning marriage. He remembers that a wife is a good thing from the Lord, and he praises the Lord for her and praises his wife. He knows that wandering from his house to a brothel or a bar is like a bird wandering from the nest. All this is from Proverbs. He knows to drink out of his own sister and sexually speaking is to rejoice in his own wife that adultery is carrying burning coals on his chest. And she knows that he'd be better off on the roof or in the wilderness than in a nice big house with a contentious brawling wife. And he doesn't love a quarrel. He doesn't add wood to the fire or conflict by speaking ill of his wife to another. It's his honor to avoid a quarrel. He doesn't repeat her sins since that repeating of sins separates even close friends. And of course it would spouses. He knows that pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And he's tempted to stray in all of this from the Lord's ways. But he knows again that there's a way that seems right to him, but in the end it leads to death. And so he fears the Lord and he keeps the Lord's ways. This wife is a fruitful vine because her husband fears the Lord and walks in his ways. She's a blessing to him because she is first blessed by him. So men, the best thing that you can do for your marriage is for you to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. It is so easy to want something out of our spouse and not be willing to do that basic thing. Fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. You'll be a channel of blessing to your wife and your wife in turn will bless you. It doesn't say just provide in your good. It says fear the Lord. The Lord's way for you is to be hers alone and for her to be yours alone. So fear the Lord when you're at work. And fear the Lord when you're in front of your computer, wherever another attractive lady may be found. Men, if you want the Lord's blessing and you're carrying coals on your chest, recommend dropping the coals that are on your chest. They're hot. If you're dabbling in pornography, you're like a deer into a noose. That is the picture that God gives to us of an unknowing animal deceived and trapped and then killed. It may cost you everything. And so I urge you to turn around and take someone's arm for help, find a Christian brother this week, confess it and do whatever it takes. Your wife is a blessing to you from God and you are saying she's not enough and you're poisoning her in the process. You're off the path You're not taking God seriously, so fear him and walk in his ways. Walk in his ways and be a blessing to her. Walk in any other way and you'll embitter her. Whichever it is, you'll get back what you're 
investing as a general rule. Your wife is your princess, a gift to you from heaven's king. We've looked at the man and his marriage. He loves his wife well. Now let's look at the children. No surprise, the children appear to be doing well as well. They're benefiting from his godliness. They're around the kitchen table. Verse 3, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Children are surely a blessing. I remember the first day I dropped my, kid, my son off for kindergarten several years back and saw hundreds of parents kissing their children and saying goodbye and at the end of the day picking them up and catching them and, and talking with them and loving them and there is just nothing better than that. My wife this week was in the parent pickup line uh, to pick up the kids at my kids' elementary school and I was getting pictures of a Maserati, of a Lamborghini, She suspects that this was an accidental turn at the wrong time of day. Don't turn down that street by Target, by E.G. Ross and Hope Christian. Uh, You won't get out of line. Everyone's waiting for their kids. Let me suggest that minivans, and the line was full of those, present more blessing to a person than a Maserati, for minivans can carry more olive shoots. And the kids in this picture are described as olive shoots, and they're doing well. Olive shoots are tender. Psalm 127 described our children as arrows in the hand of a warrior, crafted and trained to shoot true and strong and straight, fierce, ready for life when they're sent out and all that it will throw at them. But this is an image of a child at a tender young age, an earlier stage of growth, and the two images complement one another well, an olive shoot and an arrow. Olive shoots are tender. They're also energetic. You say, Trent, I know. Tornadoes have energy too. Energy is why my house is a mess. Energy is why my food bill is going up. Energy is why they won't go to sleep. Energy is what they suck out of me. It's funny, they've got so much and got so little. What's going on? Olive shoots also require patience and they require great attention. Their work, a lot of work, which is why you need to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Do not our children and the challenge of parenting drive our attention to our dependence and our need and our inadequacy? I feel that as a dad. Kids are good at making us realize this. There are many contexts for giving shape to our children's growth, for tending to them. The table is one of them. We see it here in the psalm. Protect the table. It's worth so much to your kids. Start together and pray. Eat and talk. It's so easy. But open the Bible and read a chapter. We're working through a Not a chapter, but a little paragraph or so of Mark as we go, and we just talk about whatever's there. Um, Do your best. Read the Bible, pray together, and end together. I tend to just get up and move on to the next thing. You know, they all eat shorter or faster. We're working on calibrating the whole thing. Other families are better at this than we are. Don't miss the dinner table as an opportunity to minister to your children and shape their growth, to tend to them 
or the breakfast table or the lunch table. Their bedside is another place, day in and day out, to bless your children and to transmit some of God's blessing on you down to them. This man would have known his Proverbs. He would have kept God's wisdom on parenting close. He would instruct his children in his own way that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He'd be diligent with the rod knowing that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They come automatically foolish. But that that foolishness can be driven away with the rod. You can help the child at a very young age by disincentivizing a lack of control over their words or behaviors or emotions and help them early on to get control of themselves and to be obedient. It's good for them. He would warn his sons about the temptress to see their feet away from her door. He would remember on the hardest days that the father's discipline makes a son wise and that a wise son makes his father's heart glad. It's worth it. Work they are, but when we see them as the Lord sees them, we see them as olive shoots for tending, also full of promise. Do you have a vision for your kids' lives? And I don't mean their sports career or even their career, although part of training them up is preparing them to live in the world and to have a job and to have a job and do it well. But do you have a vision of your kids walking faithfully with the Lord and in his ways and fearing him? And are you training toward that day in and day out around the table and at the bedside and in the comings and goings? As with marriage, all that we see around this table in this psalm is a finished product, even an idealized product. But walking in the Lord's ways is hard work. And so men, the best thing that you can offer your children is to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. Mothers, the same to you. The best thing that you can do for your children day in, day out, is to walk in the Lord's ways and to fear him. You'll be a channel of God's blessing to your children and your children will in turn bless you. It doesn't say raise them up in soccer or make them make sure they have enough food or pick the right school or curriculum or feed them not Chef Boyardee but one of two ingredient snacks. Uh, give them good snacks and make sure they're fed. But fear the Lord and walk in his ways and you'll be a blessing to him. If it's any help, what the Lord says is true, is testable. Consider what we know from sociology about the inestimable value even of the presence of a father and a mother and a father in the home. The number one factor for whether a kid will grow up in poverty is whether his mom and dad are together Two adults are better than one in preparing a person for life. I do not know how single mothers do it. In the United States, marriage drops the probability of a child being in poverty by 82%. Our own president has said it this way so well. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit a crime nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. At one point in our own nation, uh, almost every children would have been born into an intact two-parent home with a mom and a dad. And now it's at 40% are born to single mothers. And among some demographics, it's as high as 70%. 
hard to face. I'm not saying this to discourage anyone who may have divorced parents or who is themselves divorced. There are trials there and hurts and stories. The Lord is at work in us. But we say this so that we do not neglect to guard marriages. Where they are intact, I plead with you, keep them, keep them, keep them. Do this and your children will be a blessing to you. It all starts by fearing the Lord yourself and walking in his ways. Is it an absolute rule that your children will turn out for good? Proverbs tells us, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. No, it's not an absolute principle. It is a general principle. It is a principle. Be a godly man, be a family man, men. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. We've been on the farm with this guy. We've seen where his blessing comes from. We've, we've been in his house. Let's walk out to his city now, verses five through six, the blessed city. We see that the blessing which begins with one man in his walk with God has an extension and a reach. The Lord bless you from Zion. May he see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is not just any city like we live in a city. This is the very people of God. And when we think of blessing, we tend to be individualized about it. We think of blessing in my life, maybe even our family's life. But the people of God is the climax of this psalm. He fears the Lord and he's blessed, but the greatest of blessings is to see God's people flourishing forever. The whole psalm ends with a prayer for God's people, for peace. So the best thing that you can do at DSC is to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Our church is more than a program we put together, but it is the people that gather that are sitting around you now, the precious people with whom you're to be at peace because you're at peace with the Lord of peace. Organization and programs and a website do not a church make, it is us. And a healthy church starts with healthy Christians who fear the Lord and who walk in his ways. Well, the original readers of this poem would have resonated with our desire for what this psalm describes. They would have resonated with some of the disappointments that you may be thinking. You may be pondering how you've messed up your life, how you have not walked in the Lord's ways, how his blessing in many ways has not come to you, but the consequences you wouldn't have wanted if you knew better and feared him. There are all kinds of disappointments we might have. The people of Israel, when they would have used this song in returning to Jerusalem, would have had a whole lot of trouble behind them that they brought on themselves in sin. They were exiled from Jerusalem for spiritual adultery against the Lord. But the Lord returned them. And when they returned, this is not the vision of the city that they saw. Their city was destroyed. It was invaded. And they were back, but God's glory was not with them, even though he'd returned them. So let's remember who we are. Among us this morning is the answer to the prayer of this psalm. The Apostle Paul says that we are the Jerusalem from above. And the writer of Hebrews says this of us, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. A unified, beautiful, peaceful, worshiping community. Where did that come from? 
How is it possible? Well, for just as this psalm described how blessing moves from one God-fearing man outward in principle, so all of our hope is in one perfectly God-fearing man who walked in all of God's ways and whose blessing instead extends to all of those who trust in him. In Jesus, we have favor with God that is not coordinate with our obedience, but with his obedience, which is precisely what we need. For when we look at our lives, if we're to be blessed in relationship with our amount of obedience to the Lord, we should all be willing to admit there's not much hope for us. But because the Lord is kind in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he sends Jesus to die in the place of sinners after having lived a righteous life so that the blessing he earns is given to us. Not just individual blessing is here to celebrate today, but the favor of God in particular on his people that we know. He is the only answer to the wellness that we all want. And from this wellness springs God-fearing, reverent worship. And so the author of Hebrews continues this way. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm and for the way that it points us to you as the right, the right and proper and wonderful center of life. Father, as those who have been purchased by Jesus Christ, by his blood, who have been made worshipers, I pray that we would be a church, not just individuals, but a church that fears you and who walks in your ways and who as a result knows the blessing of God and the favor of God on our lives. Father, we thank you for the peace that is ours with you and for the peace that is ours with one another in answer to the prayer of this psalm. In Christ's name we pray, amen.